I'm Mark Akiris, and I was Nicolas Cage's stand-in for 10 years, 1994 through 2004. Welcome to Bhindi Wire and as always this episode is being hosted by me your host Thapa and my co-host Ayan Paul and today is a special episode because we have a celebrity guest amongst us Marco Kiris who has served as a stand-in for several years in Hollywood for over 10 years he stood in for Nicolas Cage which means that he he looked like Nicolas Cage, walked like Nicolas Cage, behaved like Nicolas Cage. And uh, other than that, he is also he also has a podcast of his own called Babble Bullshit and Beyond. And he has also had a documentary called Uncaged. And currently, I guess he's also working on a book. So I'll just hand it over to you, Marco. You can go ahead and tell us a little more about yourself just as an introduction. Okay, first of all, thanks for having me, guys. Thanks for reaching out. That's very cool of you. I appreciate it, and I'm thrilled to be here, and, uh, and, and maybe your audience can learn something uh, from me. I'm not sure, or at least be entertained for five minutes. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so I worked for Nick Cage for 10 years. The period was 1994 through 2004, so it was a 10-straight-year run. And uh, I did 20 films <clears throat> with him during that time. I burnt out like anybody, except for he doesn't burn out because he's a rock star and mm -hmm. I'm not a rock star. Uh, but in that time, I learned about filmmaking and um, I learned about uh, the studio networking, how the businesses are run there. And, uh, and I became pretty much the top of my game in the, in the field of being a stand-in and a photo double. Mm -hmm. So uh, I did pretty much every single shot he ever did, except for stunts. Okay. So with stunt guys who do stunts, I never do stunts. Um, mm. So anything that was stunty was mm. by the stunt guys, just mm. to clarify that. So stand-in is basically walking in motions and character of the actor, and you're setting everything up for lighting, obviously. Everything's all about lighting, and yeah. so you need to be basically his likeliness, his hair color, his weight, mm -hmm. his height everything that resembles that character, the, the actor, and then to try to move in the motions that he does, but always for lighting. Everything has to do about lighting. Lighting. Yeah. All right. So, so that's what okay. it was. So it was kind of like the silent man in the shadows on the side, but I was happy about it. Right. Uh, and he's the spotlight king, and, mm -hmm. uh, and he should be. Mm -hmm. And I was the guy who was on the side facilitating the camera crew, the director, the cinematographer, and the rest of the crew, sometimes some of the actors. Mm -hmm. Could you, uh, Marco, could you tell us a bit about uh, how you got your first gig and like uh, your first time meeting Nick Cage? Uh, yeah, it was a film here in, uh, in Toronto. It was actually Niagara-on-the-Lake outside of Niagara Falls. Right. I, I was living here at the time. I'd moved back from Los Angeles after being a failed actor, which a lot of people are. And I'm kind of proud to say I was a failed actor because some people are not worthy of being it because they didn't really pursue it correctly, and I didn't. So coming back here, I was uh, a waiter in a restaurant at the time and trying to figure out my life. I still had an agent, 
uh, and then she sent me out um, on a uh, on audition. We are Nicholas Cage's stand-in and photo double, and um, I initially hesitated because I thought it was a weird position to be in. I'd never done it; it's a first-time thing. But I went out because I I, uh, I heard that it was going to pay fairly well, and it was making, and it would be more than what I was making as a waiter, and I would have learned something about the film business other than being some egocentric, silly actor. So I went in, I got the, I went in for the audition, I got the part, and uh, I started like three days later, four days later. So I, I quit my job, but I never worked in a restaurant again. Um, it was something that was bizarre. And uh, so they hired me on the spot and, uh, and I, I immediately that Monday morning went into hair, makeup, wardrobe uh, as uh, Nick Cage's stand-in and photo double. And, uh, and that was the beginning of it. And over time, I spoke to him and then we started to have a, a, a friendship on the uh, film set. Um, remember these actors are a little hesitant at first as they should be. Um, but uh, he acknowledged the fact that I was, you know, a, a good guy and a cool guy. I kind of like teamed up with his hair and makeup uh, people who are in from New York. And, uh, and things just kind of took off from there. He invited me to start to do uh, film after film. Very generous guy, very, a very rare occasion for anybody to be offered that anonymously, like out of the blue. Mm -hmm. So it was, you know, so I, I, I took it. I didn't have anything else going on. I just, I thought, well, I'll learn about filmmaking a little bit while I'm on a film set. Mm -hmm. So you said that you developed a friendship with Nicolas Cage and that's how like you served as a stand-in for him with, for so many films. Now, Nicolas Cage in the public eye, at least for the media and the kind of roles that he picks up, He's often seen as a very, most of his roles, he's seen as a very hyperactive man. Like, you know, he gets roles where he gets very dramatic, over the top at times. And yeah. to, so as you know him behind the camera, behind the scenes, what kind of person is Nicolas Cage been in real life? Is he like very larger than life, hyperactive, or is he pretty sober? How would you describe him? As a person, I would say he was always sober, uh, okay. truthfully, uh, yeah. and always professional, All right. which is not the comment I would use for other actors that I'd worked with alongside Nick mm -hmm. Cage. But I would say that he was the most professional actor I've ever seen. And I think that's why the relationship lasted so long. He was on his mark, on point, never missed a mark. He was always quiet off the set, very methodical and very into what he was doing. He was not this, you know, crazy character. He reserved all that energy for the characters that he was going to work on. But off camera, he was a very sensible, intelligent man, an extremely well-read and well-cultured man. So right. he was, he was the, in, in my opinion, all those years that I was with him, it was the exact opposite. He was just this well-controlled, contained guy. Always surprised me every day. See him on the set, five months straight, just normal, natural, cool, collective, having fun with certain supporting actors, you know, that you get along with. Sometimes you don't get along with everybody. Yeah. But uh, always polite and courteous and professional. And that's why that relationship went really well, because I was the same. Mm -hmm. um, I learned from him, tell you the truth, because I didn't know how to be that person so much. But he actually was my mentor. 
to be that person, to be polite and courteous and respectful of every position that's on a film set, which I wasn't, you know, initially I was like, well, whatever. But then I saw how he treated the crew and I thought, well, he's the example. All right. You, yeah. <clears throat> you said that you stopped working. Like you worked as a Nicolas Cage stand until 2004. What, yes. ha- what happened after 2004? Did it tire you? Did it become monotonous? Or were there any other reasons why you stopped? Well, I, not to go crazy on the reasons, but I, I think I kind of made a couple of mistakes the last uh-huh. couple of films. Um, I think it was through exhaustion and, uh, and I was kind of burnt out and I wanted to move on in life and start a new world for myself. And I think I made some purposeful mistakes in the last film, um, Lord of War in Africa, that uh-huh. could have and probably did jeopardize our working relationship, which I was fine with, you uh-huh. know, and... And then it, uh, it kind of ended. There was a, you know, it was kind of like a, uh, it was over. But, you know, me, hair, makeup, wardrobe people, we all kind of like were uh, let go at the same time after that film, once we got back to the States. Right. There was a whole change in his world. And I think he just needed a clear house. Right. And, uh, and we were all good with it. We understood it. Everybody was tired. We were burnt out. We get it. He's never burnt out. I mean, never burnt out. It's weird. Like, it's bizarre to see this person work. He can work 18 hours a day and never complain in a minute. I complained all the time. Maybe that was part of it. Here, many of guys were just like, what are we doing climbing the fucking mountain? We're like, you know, him? Straight up. It was, uh, you know, it's amazing. I mean, he really is a rock star. He can go on like any rocker. And he never gives up. Never. Mm-hmm. On it. All the time. We're like, we're dragging our feet through the set. We're not even acting. You know, and this guy is doing everything. But, uh, you know, we, we come from a different mind and body stock, I guess. And he's he truly is Superman, <laughs> which is uh, really funny because he wanted to be Superman. Mm-hmm. He truly, I think he thinks he's Superman. And working with him, I viewed him as Superman, believe it or not, because he just had that aura about him. He's very broad. Which reminds me, Nicolas Cage had to be Superman, right? For a Tim Burton film, if I'm not wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Were you associated in that project by any way? Did you? Yeah, uh, I tried on the suit. I was in wardrobe to do it. And then it, the, the film fell through. But we were going to do it like in the late 90s. And uh, I I'd met the director. I met um, some of the crew members. I was in wardrobe putting on the suit. Of course, I'd already gotten very heavy. And they criticized me for being too fat to wear the suit. So it was really funny. They couldn't roll it up past my chest because <laughs> it was a rubber suit. And they, 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 they couldn't figure out why I had the position of being Nick Cage's double. <laughs> and because I'm, I'm really good at being a stand-in, they, they laughed at me. And they're like, dude, you should be working for Alec Baldwin. <laughs> I, was, uh, I was eating myself out of, out of a position. And I realized I was kind of flabby at that time. Right. And uh, they rolled it up and zipped it up and we're, they couldn't stop laughing because it was just all that blubber was yeah. in that pursuit. It was painful. Whereas Nick really had the body of Superman mm-hmm. and it just kind of like, it was like seamless. It just zipped up on his body. Mm-hmm. And it was the exact opposite for me. It was like putting on a massive girdle. <laughs> Terrible. So you mentioning Alec Baldwin reminds me, uh, were there any other actors or any other films that you stood in for 
uh, apart from Nicholas Cage himself. I did. I stood in for two of the Baldwin brothers, not Alec, but I did stand in for Daniel Baldwin and Billy Baldwin a couple of films way back mm-hmm. in the 90s and uh, a couple of other actors here and there. Pierce Brosnan, I'd stand, stand on Mars Attacks um, and uh, a few actors that I can't think of right now. Um, but uh, yeah, Tony Shalhoub, I stood in for for a film here. What I, I call those filler films, they were films I'd done in between working for Cage. If he took two months off, there was these smaller six week films back home here. So I would fly back and forth and I would do those films because now I was already known as this Hollywood standing guy. And I just kept working, you know, just because they kept offering me jobs. Mm-hmm. But so, I get into the cage. So I was always yeah. on his contract. So flying around and on his contracts, the studios would pay for everything and take care of all that stuff. And then when I went back to Toronto, which is where I was mainly based in, where I'm currently, I would work for um, smaller films here. Okay. So in your years of experience as a stand-in, um, were you ever treated as the other or were you sort of ostracized by crew members or set members by any way? Or did you ever experience any unpleasant sort of, I mean, anything unpleasant? And following up on that, what do you think are some of the challenges that stand-ins face uh, in the industry? Uh, first, yes, I was not treated well initially. Of course, it was a different time. I don't know what the films are like today. I'm going to say it's a little different. It's a little more Me Too-ish and everybody kind of like, there's a lot of love on sets today for any position. But back then, you were considered the busboy of a film set. So you weren't really respected much. And uh, and if you're working for a, a regular actor, they treated you much more, much with much less respect when you worked for Nick Cage, they treated you with forceful respect, not because they liked you so much, but because you worked for Nick Cage and they didn't want to piss anybody off. But yeah, I got a few people who are not thrilled about my perks, my hotels, the airfares, all the, the money, you know, my contracts. So there was a lot of animosity and they thought I was well overpaid and I was overrated and, uh, you know, I was made fun of on set, kind of like a redheaded stepchild, uh, like, like the, you know, the, the, the black sheep of the, of the, of the brotherhood. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, I took it with a grain of salt because I understood their positions, but I did justify my position by the work ethic. And that kind of like allowed me to flow through the films. But I did get ripped apart a, a lot, especially because I was on such a, actor salary and, and perk package. And, I, and it irked a lot of people uh, in the business. So uh, it was a very unusual position and unusual uh, financial position to be in. But yeah, I, I had to, you know, sometimes we were a little rougher than others, but I would say pretty much every film people were, you know, poo-pooing on me. Uh, so it was, it was a little difficult. But on a general point with a lot of standards, I don't know again about today. I think it's much more respected today because there's been a lot of publicity about standards. But back then, standards were not really considered, you know, that vital, that important. But uh, they needed you, but they didn't really care that much about you. Um, so a lot of people were in and out of the business. You know, most, most people who were standards were failed actors or people who really wanted to break in, who, who couldn't break in. It was very hard. People like myself. And so they, 
moved into the secondary position. But uh, they're, at the time, they weren't so respected, the standards. Um, I think today is a very um, different world. They, they treat them with a, a lot more respect and, and care. All right. Uh, Ayan, do you have any other questions? Yeah. Um, okay. So are there any filmmakers that uh, you had some a sort of best or worst experience with? And were there any filmmakers that you wish to have worked with, but you could not? Okay. There were most of the directors I get to work with, uh, thanks to Nick, were amazing. I will say they really threw me for a loophole. One was Ridley Scott on Matchstick Men. Um, mm. I I actually worked side by side with him on on setting up shots for Nick Cage. I I never thought in a million years he would respect the position and respect me enough to be able to do a lot of photo doubling shots and setting up the shots. Though I wasn't that physically, you know, similar to Nick. Uh, I understood the character well, and and I think that garnered a lot of uh, respect and and I was just blown away like this is gladiator director this is really Scott so when you work three months with a director all day and every day you you just don't expect it and um, the fact that he was very open and conversational every single day through shots threw me off but I was you know I I was very receptive to it and um, Martin Scorsese was another one to my surprise was a real fun jokester on set and uh, working with him on these shots and these scenes were actually quite a pleasure. I didn't think they would be because I was Martin Scorsese, but uh, we had a constant dialogue back and forth. And John Woo in particular, John Woo uh, was probably the best for me, uh, especially on Face Off. Yeah. So we had an amazing rapport together working, even though it was a lot heavier at that time, John Wu would make fun of me and says, you know, I look like a Nick Cage Michael. I'm like, what do you mean? He says, you so fat, now you should work for John Travolta. <laughs> he killed me because I was overeating to keep myself um, from not passing out from exhaustion. Yeah. So, you know, the hours were very long and I would start eating more and more when you're on a film set and they, they cater these, you know, these meals of steak and lobster. and I just ate the whole time. And it was like being in a five-star restaurant every day and I couldn't stop eating. So, and that gave me energy, but I kept swelling up. And it was a big joke that how does this guy work for Nick Cage who was so skinny at the time, it was hysterical. So but, John uh, Wu wanted you to get a face-off, face-off operation did. as John Travolta. He wanted a body off. Body <laughs> off. It was, uh, it was pathetic. And I have a photograph here that, that Mark pulled out. So there's Nick as the, uh, when he was the prisoner. And I actually played a prisoner guard in the movie. Thanks All to right. John Wu. Part. So there's a photograph here and it's hysterical. You will see how heavy I am next to Nick in this photograph. And when I see this, it scares me to death. But that's the truth. And that was, I don't know what you can see from it. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the truth. And there's a huge difference. So at that time, uh, they gave me a role, which is great because it, it really boosted the finances even more than I was already making, which was really nice. Yeah. But it was a gift from John Woo to me for the work that I was doing. So a lot of those directors did that for me. They gave me parts as a gift um, because we got along so well. And I, I became instrumental to the filmmaking process without, you know, you know, 
fucking up, which I didn't fuck up. I was very on the ball. I knew my marks. I knew the setups, knew the camera lenses. Uh, I understood how to work with the 200 extras. I knew how to coordinate in between everybody and put down marks for Nick Cage. I mean, it was a really technical position that I took very seriously. Mm-hmm. So as much as they poo-pooed on me, I showed them that I knew what I was doing during mm-hmm. that time. Even though I was eating myself out of a visual job, there's <laughs> another one here on a mad stick, and there we are between Nick and I discussing the shot for an airport scene. And I was telling him uh, where the where the marks are and so forth and how we, we aligned this particular shot so he can go through it. And then they videotaped my rehearsal and then he goes through it all. all right. So, uh, I mean, that's how closely we worked, but that's because the director was, um, was trusting in me to know what I was doing. And the truth was I knew what I was doing all mm-hmm. the way around. Um, like we saw some snippets of your documentary and Nick Cage, as we mentioned earlier, as you mentioned earlier, he's a very energetic person. Yes. So we talked about how you looked like Cage, walked like Cage. There might have been moments where you have to behave like him, like, you know, using your hand gestures or whatever, or yep. just enacting him, like, you know, mimicking him, his voice or whatever. Like, how, how has that been? Like, I was seeing some snippets and there was a scene from Snake Eyes or uh, I'm forgetting the movie Snake Eyes or 8mm is one of it. And you were also like, you know, enacting him out. And it was a pretty spot on impression. So yeah, I guess, I don't know if it was spot on. <laughs> I did that a lot on the film sets and I yeah, think yeah. people were laughing and I, I had to kind of like stop it because they thought I was terrible. But I tried my best in the short film to try to emulate what he does. Yeah. The truth is nobody can be Nick Cage. And of that's course, yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. He's probably the most unique American actor of all time ever in the history of filmmaking. That's, that's true. I mean, honestly, and as much as I tried to do it, everybody mm-hmm. tries to do it. They do it on Saturday Night Live. They have all these professional actors and comedians doing it. But I was with Nick all those years. So I tried to copy it for fun to yeah. see if I could get away with it on a film set so the mm-hmm. camera could understand the emotion uh, and, uh, and, and the framing in case he goes a little on the wilder side. And so I would do those things also just to understand how wide a particular lens is and if they can actually get that emotion and those hands in there. Because sometimes you may just get this and he's all over the place. <laughs> and, uh, and that may not work. So, uh, so I, I'll mimic it a little bit and play with it. And then they may pull back on the camera just so they get the essence of what he's going to do. Uh, not that I was 100% sure what he was going to do, but... It, there could have been certain scenes I said that he could kind of explode. So I would play that a little bit and then the camera would adjust with the caution that he may go there. And, uh, and, and so that's kind of like why I did it. And then for the short movie, I just, I did it like for fun and stuff, but yeah. it became a part of the filmmaking for me. So people kind of expected me to, to be on that level. Mm-hmm. Have you ever been mistaken for him in public? Yeah, a few times uh, in foreign cities, meaning not here so much, but in in smaller cities that uh, when we went places like, I don't know, Philadelphia and smaller towns in New Jersey and airports here and there, um, especially with sunglasses on. Not today anymore, but um, back then much more. 
Um, yeah, I think because I was kind of like in his headspace so often. And I think he was in my headspace at times. And uh, you kind of like take that on almost like a, a brother from another mother. At the time, without knowing it, I started to walk and kind of talk like him. And I was a little slurry, but I didn't even notice that it was talking that way. And it just kind of like, and people thought, oh, you're doing cage, but I didn't know that I was doing cage because I was, first of all, exhausted all the time. Secondly, I just viewed the character and I just kind of moved in that motion. And yeah. over time, you snap out of it like I have now. But uh, it, it, you know, it was a little bit a part of it. You're probably a ceremonial member of Coppola family. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess so. I'm telling you, I'm that red-headed stepbrother dude. <laughs> Uh, do you okay? So yeah. your last film with Cage uh, in 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 two thousand five or four? Uh, in four, yeah, it so, actually was in four. Released. So did you know at the time that it was your last film? And if so, like, what was that sort of final experience like? And uh, yeah, I mean, do you sort of crave it uh, still? No, first of all, I don't crave it at all. <laughs> um, other time, and it has nothing to do with Nick in terms of craving. It was just the burnout of being on a film set all those hours. Um, so I don't crave it, but I did feel the energy was going to end. I thought it was going to end prior to the film prior to that on The Weatherman, which I was actually, you know, quitting on because I, I didn't mm. want to work at that point. I wanted to give it up. Um, I didn't want to go to Africa, uh, South Africa, for this Lord of War because it looked like it was going to be a very tough film. And I don't know what the elements are like. And I was already tired. But I did it. And I knew, I felt inside of me that this was going to be the end. It's like a divorce. Sometimes you're married for 10 years and you're like, you got to move on. You can't be nasty or bitter. You've got to move on. You take what you've learned. You take a lot of energy with you. You take a lot of experience. Um, you take a lot of love, a lot of lust, a lot of hurt, a lot of pain, but it's life. And I'm good with that. Like I have zero animosity towards it. Like I was exhausted anyway. So it was a yeah. relief to me. I did feel like that was going to be the last film. I was feeling it the entire time. Um, and especially in the last month of that film felt uh, there was a lot of weird energy. Uh, do you still keep in touch with him? No. Over the ages. All right. Or, and no. this might be a very like, personal question because I and Ayan, both of us are hardcore Nick Cage fans. Do you still follow yeah. his films? Do you still follow his recent filmography? Uh, yeah. I actually don't. I know it uh, sounds really nasty. My, my, uh, my, my buddy here, Mark does. He yeah. is a Nick Cage like you guys are. Yeah, he knows yeah. every film. He knows yeah. every script. He's read all of them. <laughs> Yeah. Um, and he loves all of them. He's a huge fan. And then he always dissects the films for me and the stories and the characters. Uh, I have not been watching any of the films in the last decade or so. Does so it I've, feel, I've kind of moved on to other things. Does it feel weird for you if you revisit, like if you uh, check out his new films that you weren't working with him? Because you, you just said that it felt like a relief after you gave up uh, being a stand-in for Nick Cage. So what exactly repulses you from his recent films? 
Oh, he doesn't repulse me at all. I just all right. be very clear. And he, as a person, he never did. He was the most mm. generous man on the planet. Yeah. I wouldn't be this successful without him. Let's be mm. clear about that. Yeah, yeah. So because of his generosity, is be I got to have a good life. Uh, yeah. It wasn't because of me. It was because of him. Uh, nothing. I just you know like if 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 you feel sick, if you have like spaghetti in a can for ten straight years, you can't look and eat that spaghetti again. You know what I mean? You have to like change. Now you don't want pasta anymore. Yeah. And that's kind of like how I felt. I stopped watching films after working in the film business and after wanting to be an actor, though I still keep up with the unions and so forth and everything else and all the business oriented side of it. Um, I never went back on a film set. Though I was offered to, for other films. I, I, I didn't go back. Um, I don't know if I would today so much. Um, but I knew that I had, you know, I was, you get burnt out on it. You just don't want to do it. It's like, so I, it's, it's not him or the films. It's just, I haven't really watched many films at all. Mm. Uh, I just, I do other things now and, uh, I'm slowly getting back into movie watching, but I'm starting off with documentaries, all right. which I'm kind of enjoying. And then I'll go back into feature films, but it's, you know, it's like being sick over some medicine or something. You know, you're mm -hmm. just kind of like done. Yeah, and you yeah. need to keep away from that. That's all. So can you tell us a little about what you have been doing after 2004? Yeah, you said you've been working on a book as of late. Are there any other projects apart from that? I've been working on this book a couple of years, but I've been redoing it and revamping it because I've been discovering things about myself, which I didn't know. As a very late bloomer in life, I wasn't aware of myself the way you kids are today, or like my, my, my buddy Mark here. I find young people are very in tune to their own psyche and their mind and their body. I will say that I never was. I was kind of like a shell of a person. So as I'm writing this over the last couple of years, I'm discovering so much about myself that I have to rewrite every chapter with a writer. So I do have a writer who structures it and I'm making him a little crazy but uh, I'm learning about myself as I keep revisiting situations and my films, all these films. When I look back and I think, oh, my God, I did all these movies. How am I still standing when I was like breaking my back and sick and in the hospital and fevers and, you know, infections and everything else that happened? Um, when I look at these massive films, it's, you know, so it, there's a lot to write about. So it is taking up a lot of time. Plus, I'm, I'm writing a um, uh, co-writing a, a TV series, a fictional version right. of that as well. And we're going to be shooting the feature documentary version of Uncaged the Standard Story later on this fall. Right. So that we're producing as well. So those are the things I've been working on basically the last couple of years due to the success of the short film. Um, mm. But aside of, from that, I bought a, you know, a lot of real estate and then I kind of like managed my real estate holdings um, to settle me in financially as I got into mm -hmm. an older person like I am now. So I don't have to crave a job anymore, um, right. which was always the goal. I just didn't know that it was achievable until you achieve it. Yeah. And I have any other questions. Mm, no, I think that about wraps it up. <laughs> yeah. you sure? Is yeah. that your hair, dude? Sorry? Is that your hair? Oh, it is, yeah. <laughs> Oh my, I thought it was your hair, but it's hard because it's dark in the bag. Exactly. <laughs> your hair pop up. 
and it's like okay <laughs> you're like a little so interesting. Interesting. <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> That's funny. I couldn't tell what the big head was. I was like, is that like the picture? <laughs> yeah, I get that a lot. Yes. Yeah. I'm sure you're a musician as well. I used to be. Uh, <laughs> all right. So, wow. yeah, because after filming all those films for all those years, you, you tend to burn out. It's not that I had a craft. Like people in, in the world of hair and makeup wardrobe, these are people who are set up in their unions and they work from film to film. They can work for anybody. Yeah, yeah. Stand-in, you can just go back to working as a basic stand-in somewhere, or it's very hard to attach yourself to some big star after such a big run, such a superstar mm -hmm. like, like him. Mm -hmm. And uh, I decided that I didn't want to go back into the business in that capacity. I, I don't mind it as a producer, yeah. Um, or a guest spot on something, but I didn't want to get back into it on this level at all. And I, and that's why I'm kind of writing these things to end up co-producing and funding all my projects. But I, I wanted to build up just like your parents do. Yeah. I wanted to build up real estate because I knew that that was the future uh, that could enable me to retire. Yeah. Uh, Cause that's like the biggest thing in the world to do. So that's mm -hmm. all. You know, I had been following you on Instagram since the past few years. And yeah. for the longest time, I used to think you are Nick Cage's stunt double. And so I, I, I used to follow you hoping that I'll get some, you know, behind the scenes footage of stunts and all. But then because of you, I understood what a stand-in means. And then I researched and then I got to know what a stand-in is. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's like, it's, it's pretty cool talking to you. I didn't even know if you would respond because, you know, we're just students and all of that. But yeah, it's pretty but cool. I, I love responding to, to young people, especially, you know, I've done a lot of Q and A's for younger people right. to inspire them or to uninspire them in the film business. Like I tell Mark, <laughs> because it's you know, rough business and he worked in the business yeah. and he got out of it because it's mm -hmm. so tough because the hours are, 12 to 15 hours a day depending on the position that you're in yeah and it's, it's quite grueling because you're in different elements and different weather conditions and, and yeah. different streets and sometimes studios and it takes a lot out of your body and it mm -hmm. takes your entire life to be there and you have to be fully committed now if you're a craftsman like a camera operator or a hair or a makeup person it's part of that but when you don't have those positions it, it can really be tedious and it yeah. can really wear on you. Um, so it's, it's a, that's why I like talking about it because young kids like yourselves may think yeah. it's all glamorous and it's fun yeah, and yeah. cool. I would yeah. say the only glam, glamour time I ever had per film was at the rap party, which was one night. <laughs> and at the premiere, uh, for example, Bringing Out the Dead. Uh -huh. uh, those were the only times I would consider it glamorous because the premiere is amazing yeah. and the rap party is amazing. It's like the Academy Awards. It's phenomenal. But those mm -hmm. are two parties for one movie. Yeah. So if you're working three to six months on a movie, you get two days of really enjoying that. The rest of the time you're with, you know, hundreds of people that you're working with that you don't know but learn. Mm -hmm. in different cities you're not even in your own city you're all over the place yeah so it's hard to keep up with all that because then you don't really have a life and it's okay for people who don't want a life but i was yearning for a life after that mm -hmm. so it's 
I like talking to young people because I like to either encourage them or discourage them. Yeah. You know, it's like being a rock star. You know, you're on the road all the time. A lot of things happen when you're on the road and, and you get sick and you're away from friends and family and there's no relationships <laughs> and weird things happen that are completely out of your control that are things that you do that you would never think you would do, which I also did. And uh, so that's why I'm like, you know, think about it carefully because it's, it's not for everybody. You know, yeah. for a very select few who can actually tolerate that roadster lifestyle. Mm -hmm. yeah. So Thapa and I are actually at an age where we're still sort of figuring out what we're doing and what we want to do. But uh, as really huge film buffs, we've always sort of, um, we've aspired to maybe perhaps one day be able to work in the industry. Yeah. And it's it's really cool. It's really inspirational. And as you said, uh, it could either encourage or discourage us in in yeah. all the right ways yeah. uh, to hear stories like yours. And and that's great. Yeah. And and you'll try it on your own. And most people who get into it to a certain degree yeah. uh, usually get out of it. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. if they can, they're out before they're old enough. Once you're in it and you're stuck and you don't know how to change the career, uh, you're stuck for life. It's like being in a prison. Uh, mm -hmm. You have to figure out how to get out when it doesn't work for you anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, if it's working for you, fine. And if you're okay with doing that stuff, it's also great, you know, because you're invested in it emotionally as well and physically. Um, a lot of people are not and they just kind of drag on. You know, yeah. and, uh, and so there's there's a big difference. So if you're a director and you actually are hired by the studios because you got to fund everything yourself, otherwise you're going to find it quite tedious and, and very difficult. If you're okay with that process for years on end and living with your parents until you're 35, then <laughs> that's fine. But uh, if, uh, if you're not and you want to move on and you're not getting that opportunity you think you're going to get, then you have to figure out something else. And, uh, and, you know, and that's why I like talking to young people because it's something to really think about. And that's why I'm open to doing these podcasts, especially to young people versus people of my age group, because everybody of my age group that I know is quitting <laughs> or has already quit or has invested in other things where they don't have to be bothered in it. Unless you're a stunt guy. Stunt guys, they're like rock stars too. The stunt guys that I know from 25 years ago, including Nick Cage's guy, they're mm -hmm. all working. <laughs> These guys, you know, they break their arms, their legs, their toes, their face, their noses, and they're, you should see them, they look like Frankenstein. Half their body parts are missing. And uh, I just got back from LA, and yeah. half of them are halfway dead, and they still show up, you know, with back braces and needles in their, in their, and pins and things, and putting their body together. It's like, dude, what is wrong with you? Dude, I love fucking... <laughs> like, wow i'd rather be a fucking waiter at denny's restaurant i said what is wrong with you people <laughs> but you know they're those thrill-seeking people that can't give it up they don't care if they break their arm they just go get mm -hmm. it fixed and they'll show up on a set five mm -hmm. weeks later it's crazy to me i was like no i think i'm good i'll sit in a cafe and i'm gonna take up smoking you know i'm good you know but these guys no yeah yeah, so it's, there's a lot to think about when you're young. Mm -hmm. It all sounds great. There's 500 channels, thousands of movies and shows out there, and everybody yeah. talks about how amazing it is, but the ones who talk about how amazing it is are the successful actors. 
then you have 95% of them who are miserable living in a tiny apartment and usually under the influence of alcohol. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's the reality of that. And that's what I don't want young people to do is to get yeah. fucked up because they're not succeeding at it. You have yeah. to have a time zone and say, hey, dude, I'm not succeeding. I got to move on. Mm-hmm. And that's the way to approach it. Just like pretty much anything, you know. So that, that's why I'm, I'm happy to do the podcast. Hopefully mm-hmm. young people will learn from that, bad and good. Mm-hmm. But now, yeah. I guess like, you know, as we ask two questions, uh, we can turn the tables. If you want to ask us anything uh, that you wanted to know about India, we'll be glad to answer you if you had any questions. Uh, what? Let me ask you about the film industry in India. Okay, that's one thing. Because oh. none of them are film people. They're all corporate people. Uh-huh. So all, all the people I know of my group here are all in the medical fields, usually yeah. the medical fields, and some in the corporate fields, yeah, including yeah. the financial investor, but uh, and my accountant in Los Angeles, um, who's direct, who's Christian from India. And apparently that's a rare thing. Mm-hmm. In, yeah. In and I was surprised that uh, that he was Christian, mm-hmm. uh, but he is. And uh, and he also explained to me that that was a minority in mm-hmm. India, mm-hmm. but he does live in Los Angeles and he's been my accountant for 20 years. Right. But uh, how is the film industry as a whole in India or is it much more, or is it localized in, in it Delhi? Is. Yeah, it so, is a... so actually, even though Delhi is the capital of India, there yeah. is this city called Bombay, which yeah. is like the film hub. But again, as you it's said, it's like the it's, Hollywood. Yeah, of, it's like the Bollywood. It's, the whole Bollywood. it's Bollywood. Yeah, LA, yeah. yeah. You know, Bollywood's very big here. You know that, right? It's yeah, 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 yeah. So, but again, yeah. like often, what uh, non-Indians, non-Indians end up thinking that Bollywood is one film industry of India, but actually, yeah. Bollywood just represents this uh, language called Hindi. And otherwise, there are a lot of localized industries as well. So like the southern regions of our country, they have a massive uh, film industry in their own language. So there is a Mm -hmm. Tamil film industry, there's a Telugu film industry, Mm -hmm. and so on. But uh, yeah, like in general, like uh, the general population, the mainstream population of India, it's we worship, worship actors, like people, literally, like they treat some actors as gods over here. So that is oh, that. The same Hollywood. They do the same thing. So it's good. That's why they call it Bollywood and Hollywood. Yeah, like, yeah. We love them. And these yeah, people are yeah. superstars. And I've seen a lot of Indian yeah. stars. And I know people in the, you know, here yeah, yeah. locally in the industry, you know, there are filmmakers here who are Indian, who are very successful in Toronto. And yeah. it's very, they're part of the mainstream. They're not some mm. minority group that you would think. You yeah, know? yeah. It would be more in LA, but not here. Mm-hmm. that's interesting to know about that yeah because because see india as as a whole doesn't have one majority language like there are numerous yeah. languages so yeah so as i was saying like like ayan's native language might be different than what is my native language so because mm-hmm. like there's a lot of diversity over here so yes. you don't have like one national language as such so that's why even the films can be pretty diverse but the Biggest industry is, of course, Bollywood in Bombay, the Hindi yeah. film industry. Mm. So, and other than that, we yeah. have like an alternate parallel cinema movement also. Like there are more new viewers who want something, you know, less uh, big budgety. Like, like, we, like you have worked with Michael Bay, 
right so yeah. we we have a lot of michael bay types directors over here like directors love exploding cars and you yeah. know the big muscled heroes and all that uh-huh. every then, uh, every film in bollywood is is a spectacle in its yeah, yeah. in itself and, uh, and it's all it's all mainstream cinema and yeah. like you if you move towards the specific regional cinema you would find more sort of indie films like um like you would in hollywood through indie production houses art house films and all exactly. of that so yeah. that's happening although again like mostly non indian people they are very amused by the spectacular yeah. films that yeah. we have in bollywood like like what you guys have in uh, the musical genre right you guys are just actors are singing along that is yeah. pretty common in our uh, films yeah we every bollywood film is a musical yeah, yeah. like there are a lot I of i've been watching indian movies i don't know any of the titles from yeah. when i was a child because there was a channel here on tv all right that on sundays catered to bollywood films and they were all, all right. musicals yeah, yeah so a certain amount of hours there was italian then it was greek mm-hmm. and then it was indian so yeah. that still exists here so right. i i got to see it you don't see it in america Mm-hmm. but you see it in Canada so i used to watch and they're all musicals everybody yeah, yeah. musicals musical song and dance the boy meets the girl yeah, yeah. they fall in love then they do a all big wedding thing dancing then they're, they're yeah. happily after they're going to have kids and the movie ends if you if you are a mainstream actor in india then you got to be a good lip syncer because you need to lip sync to songs like there are numerous songs over here so that can again be a good thing and a bad thing like for us local sometimes it gets like uh, it gets overkill but mm-hmm. uh, for other foreign critics and all they they really like it because it's something special they feel for yeah. bollywood and other indian films but yeah that's about it i guess if you have anything else to add you can go ahead um no no right now um yeah. uh it was just just that part of it i i know that there are different languages and dialects i know they yeah. you know the sri lankans and there's i know they they the two languages and so forth and you know just because they're here they're not it's not so known in the states but mm-hmm. you know i understand that and they all have film stuff i didn't realize that uh bombay was like the film capital there kind of yeah, like yeah hollywood yeah, yeah, yeah. bollywood hollywood kind of a thing Yeah yeah um and thanks to globalization and thanks to the internet and thanks to people moving in and coming and going out of different countries we all get to explore those things which I'm happy about because I'm Greek background all right so when I go to Greece I see all their movies have musicals and uh-huh. song and dance and boy meets girl and blah blah and then there's all that whole drama drama the killings uh, the jealousy ones you're you know somebody's cheating on the girlfriend so they kill her you know all those drama things yeah. you know i know that they're very similar there and they're the same in, in in Greece so i grew up watching those films as well being an immigrant mm. myself like mm-hmm. that so i understood that it was a part of the culture whether you were greek or indian yeah. or puerto rican it didn't matter it was just mm. another culture you know yeah yeah but uh no that's good it's and and i'm glad that they're exploding all over the place especially with the indian film festivals and stuff it's a big mm-hmm. deal in toronto and i like that that's happening yeah. because we get to open up and see things that we didn't see 20 years ago even though those films are being done all the time in india mm-hmm. you rarely saw them here yeah definitely yeah, yeah. and and people are showing them and people want to see them 
Mm-hmm. You know, so it's it's nice. That's what I like about globalization is that we all get to like understand, you know, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, if you say, oh, in India, we're going to do a show from India. You're like, what? <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah, no problem. What is it? 10 hour difference? Sure. Let's do it. Yeah. yeah. It didn't even dawn on me. It's like, yeah, you know, mm-hmm. because you're as relevant today as we are. Yeah, yeah. 20, 30 years ago, it was not perceived that way. Even though you were, hmm. the world didn't see you that way. Hmm. But um, thanks to all this learning, we do actually feel connected and we do feel like we're one and the same. It doesn't matter where you are today. Yeah. You know, so I, I do like that a lot. Mm-hmm. So um, I appreciate you reaching out. Yeah. It's, it's been such a great opportunity. Thank, thanks so much. <laughs> Oh, you're welcome. Are you kidding? Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> you guys are very nice. Yeah. Think about your choices going forward. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Well, like Nick Cage, I think he would enjoy it and like that. I think he's such a global entity. I think that he would be happy that you guys reached out, you know, and stuff, <laughs> you know, and I, I really do. I think that yeah. he likes it because he goes to Asia a lot. Right. I don't know if he's to India, but, yeah. uh, and he does a lot of interviews there. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and he loves it out there. So I think he's very open to these things going forward. So I think he would enjoy that as well. I mean, I'm just as open as he is when it comes yeah. to that. I think it's wonderful. That whole global thing, we're really into it. Yeah, yeah. like we also... Thank God, you know. Yeah. Sorry, uh, I didn't get you. Thank God, we're lucky that it's all open. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, we're like, uh, we ourselves, uh, as we grew up in the early 2000s, so that's the time where English movie channels started coming to India also. So we ourselves yeah. grew up on films like Corner, Face Off, and yeah. even like, you know, Ghost Rider, National Treasure, all of that. So like we have a lot of nostalgia attached to Nicolas Cage mm-hmm. ourselves. So yeah. funny, I did all those films except for Ghost Rider. And yeah. <laughs> Ghost was- Rider was like a guilty pleasure for us. You know. <laughs> yeah, that's what I heard, but there was, you know, that was going to be all stunts anyway. I was never going to yeah, do yeah, yeah. a whole movie with stunts and, and special effects and CGI. Yeah, so yeah. I would have been doing nothing. I read the script and I'm like, well, I'm not going to be working on this thing. I'll be hanging out in the middle of the desert. Yeah. So yeah. I didn't want to do it. Oh, I guess that is all. Then we can wrap up right now. It's really pretty enlightening. Yeah, it's really informative on. yeah when we got to, i mean when Thapa first told me that we we're going to get the opportunity to interview this person and i, I was like yeah, I, was, old. <laughs> I was really like just having this fangirl moment and uh, <laughs> but this turned out to be so much more than i expected thanks a lot again thank you so much marco you guys are great guys yeah great guys happy to do it yeah thank you